I'll acknowledge that there are some people who've never forgiven me or or the paper for all, each one of those stories, and I still hear about each one of those stories periodically. Um, but you know that's the role of the role of the press and of our paper in particular is to is to challenge uh, preconceived notions. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I talk with Nigel Jaquis, investigative reporter for Willamette Week for the last 20 years. Nigel has been referred to as the reporter of last resort. And in 2005, he and the paper won the Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting on his work exposing Governor Neil Goldschmidt's abuse of a 14-year-old girl. When I was in my early 30s, uh, my parents had both died relatively young. They were both in their 50s when they died. Not long after that, my wife and I had our first child. We have three now. But those those deaths of my parents and the birth of my daughter really made me reflect on my life. Was I doing what I wanted to do? Um, you know, my parents' deaths obviously showed me that life is very short. Yeah. And my father was a, a scientist. He was happy, but he had left science and moved into management. And he, so he used to talk to me about in essence, doing things other than what he really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So I think all that focused me on on trying to find something that, that really uh, made me happy. And I wanted to try writing. Initially, I thought I would try fiction, but I went to journalism school and fell in love with nonfiction. Yeah. And you've been uh, in Portland for over 20 years. You were here briefly doing what? And you well, decided to stay. I have a brother who preceded me. I actually have two brothers who live in Portland. So we had come to visit, and um, we had some other friends who lived here but were out of the country for three months. So when I stopped trading, I was a trader on Wall Street and went to journalism school. When I finished, we had a chance to come out here for three months and see if we liked it. And we, we loved it and uh, decided to go back to the East Coast and sell our house. And, and uh, I applied for a job at Willamette Week, uh, not thinking that that would necessarily lead to anything. But uh, when we came back, I started working at Willamette Week. Why uh, an alt-weekly as opposed to a daily? What was it that, that attracted you? Then? Yeah, that's a great question uh, because I'm a, I, you know, my background was on Wall Street and uh, I'm a pretty conventional mainstream person. I'm not really an alternative person. When I came to town, I, I had been working on a novel which was never published because it wasn't any good, but it involved uh, a Russian organized crime influence in the oil market, which is where I had worked. I worked as an oil trader in New York. And when I arrived in Portland, there was a young Russian man killed in a car bombing. And uh, I was very interested in that. I wanted to know uh, why he was killed, of course, who he was, how he got here, how many Russian uh how many Russians lived in the area, why, why they were here, all, all the kind of basic questions that good journalism should try and answer. The Oregonian had a brief story on his killing but never followed up. And a few weeks later, Willamette Week had a, had a cover story that tried to answer all those questions. And I thought to myself, well, you know, the path that I thought I might take was try and get a job at the Oregonian, maybe work on the business desk and eventually move into investigative stuff. But I thought, well, Willamette Week is doing exactly what I want to do now, so maybe I'll I'll give that a try instead. And I, I thought 
I was lucky to get a job there. And I thought, okay, I'll do this for a few years, then I'll probably move on. But uh, 20 years later, I'm still there. And 20 years later, you've broken some big stories. Uh, I know you've talked about them exhaustively, but um, they're they're big stories. One of them, uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning piece on Neil Goldschmidt, the only Pulitzer Prize given to an investigative piece for an alt-weekly, which is pretty impressive. But I remember reading that, and last night, actually, I read it again. But I remember reading that, and I... It mentions Virginia Cafe, and I can't remember if I was in the Virginia Cafe at the time when I'm reading this article that you did on Neil Goldschmidt exposing his, well, he took advantage of a 14-year-old girl uh, and essentially uh, raped her for a number of years. And it was a sad, heartbreaking story, and you broke that story. And um, breaking apart these big stories, the one about Governor Kitzhaber and even Sam Adams, what was it about these stories? I mean, you're known for these things, but yet you do so much more. But give me a little bit of insight on when you were covering those. Sure. Um, I, th- I think that uh, to sort of connect that to why I've stayed at Willamette Week, um, the editor, uh, Mark Sussman, and the uh, publisher, Emeritus Richard Meeker, have owned the paper for 35 years. And uh, they have really put their hearts and souls into uh, covering Portland and to asking hard questions. And they've done so, you know, to their financial detriment. They've lost a lot of advertisers and a lot of friends over the years because of their belief that you know, the public deserves uh, for, for the press to ask those kinds of questions and to ask them even when they're uncomfortable and when they may make us uncomfortable. So, um, those stories that you mentioned and others are all, I think, uh, they're a reflection of the attitude that those two men brought to the paper, which is that, you know, there are parts of the Oregonian's a great, has been a great daily paper, like a lot of papers, it's it's under-resourced now, but there are always going to be gaps in coverage, and one of the gaps in coverage locally has been the willingness to uh, confront and challenge uh, uh, local institutions, whether they're powerful organizations or powerful individuals, and that's been the that's been the role that the, the paper had long before I arrived, and I hope will have long after I'm gone. But those those stories that you mentioned, um, I think, are a reflection of uh, our willingness as a paper to sort of collect string, to use a journalistic cliche, but to to be constantly paying attention to how individuals and institutions are connected to each other, how, how they work, who understands them, and trying to form relationships with people who understand how our city and our state work, and, and at some point to try and connect all the dots. And um, so, so those stories were, were kind of a reflection of, of uh, a lot of uh, knowledge gained over time by covering uh, smaller stories, stories that may appear to have no relationship to Neil Goldschmidt or John Kitzhaber or Sam Adams, but stories that kind of give the paper a context to try and uh, to try and do bigger stories. And I think you having been not only at Willamette Week for so many years, but also in the city for decades, helps you take a, a, a what might seem to be an insignificant piece from 10 years ago of a story that you did to a story a couple of years ago to something happening recently and piece these things together uh, to eventually uh, put together a story. 
I, it's a it's a real advantage for me to have been at the paper for so long and to work uh, for for Mark and Richard and and for people like Brent Walth and and uh, Hank Stern, John Schrag, now Aaron Mesh to have editors who understand the context of the city, to have owners of the paper who understand the the context, how people fit together. So a lot of the time uh, that I spend is trying to to you know, form relationships with people, but then sort of reflect what I'm hearing and discuss what I'm hearing with the, the people I work with to try and to try and look at the, the larger picture. In, in the news business, it's very easy to become transfixed with the shiny object, what's happening today, and not to say, well, how, but how did we get here today? Why is this happening today? And what does it mean in the, in the broader uh, span of time? So I think to to have the luxury to work at a place for as long as I have has really informed some of the stories I've done. And you mentioned Richard Meeker, who was there in the beginning, 1974, he was there and was publisher through 2015. And then uh, Mark Sussman's been there since 82. So um, as editor and now publisher for the last couple of years. And so again, that institutional knowledge about Portland and the inner workings is hugely impactful in so many of the stories that you guys cover uh, at Willamette Week. And it's even, you know, the murmurs even have these pieces, that section of the paper where I go, huh, it's, what, three paragraphs, but there's a lot covered in that three paragraphs. And I always have a feeling I'm going to see something bigger. uh, That's the cover story a few months or even a few years later. And I think the other thing that I, I really like about Willamette Week is that those stories, those cover stories, I might not read all of them, but the ones that I read, they're, they're in depth and yeah. uh, they uncover a lot of rocks. Well, for me, uh, even as I was starting out at Willamette Week, having never worked in journalism, I never worked, you know, for my college paper or my high school paper. Um, I, I really was starting from square one, but I was immediately attracted to the idea that that uh, you would get several weeks, sometimes several months, to uh, drill down on an issue and to really try and understand it and focus on uh, what hadn't been covered about that issue or how people might not be putting uh, the pieces together. I think most reporters, most editors uh, love the idea of being able to have more time. If you ask anybody in the news business what they'd like to have more of, aside from money, it's time. So it is a luxury even today. Our staff is tiny, but um, Mark uh, Zussman really believes that you know, there's still a role for uh, long-form journalism in this city. And you know, our cover stories aren't tremendously long. They're about 3,000 words. Uh, sometimes they may seem uh, endless to people <laughs> who are reading them. But it is, uh, I think it's a service to the city that we're still able to, to use that much uh, real estate within the paper to try and really uh, take a look at things. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the paper taking hits for those articles about Goldschmidt and Kitzhaber, probably in particular, those two men were uh, sacred cows in many respect. And so I have to imagine that it wasn't just the paper, but also you took a lot of flack for those. Yeah, I, I mean, this is, a, this is a democratically dominated city, a large D, uh, left-leaning, one of the most liberal cities, progressive cities in the country. And, and that's one of the things that makes it a wonderful place to live. But it it, it is the case that uh, both those guys and even 
perhaps more, Sam Adams were were really popular. They had a, a strong constituency who loved them and believed in them. And all three of those guys did great things for, for this city and John Kitzhaber for this state. So so they had built up an accumulated uh, a body of goodwill. And so when you, when you challenge people's uh, beliefs or when you challenge the narrative that they have grown accustomed to, the narrative that has lived in the public uh, for years or even decades in the case of Kitzhaber and Goldschmidt, it's hard for people to rethink or, or to think differently uh, about people that they have uh, seen in a certain way. And so that, that can uh, cause, uh, you know, emotional turmoil. It can cause anger. It can cause people to to say things to you that they sometimes will then try to unsay. But yeah, it, it does, it has created, those stories have all created backlash for the paper and for me personally. And I, I think it's, when I say me personally, I, I don't think it's the unhappiness that I might hear is not, I don't think, directed at me personally. It's really more a reflection of people uh, grappling with, with their feelings and with their emotions. And, uh, you know, I'm the vehicle perhaps for for the story. And so I'm the recipient of those uh, responses. But, uh, you know, I, I think that um, o- over time, the, the responses that we've had as a paper and that I've had individually have been uh, generally positive, even from people who may be very angry at first. Uh, you know, I, I, I'll acknowledge that there are some people who've never forgiven me or, for, or the paper for all, each one of those stories, and I still hear about each one of those stories periodically. Um, but you know that's the role of the role of the press and of our paper in particular is to is to challenge uh, preconceived notions. When you guys are sitting down and figuring out your stories for the week, for the day, for long term uh, pieces that will take longer to research, you know I've been in a TV newsroom where the news editor will you know talk about the stories of the day. Uh, you guys have a small staff. Where are these? leads coming from? Where are these stories coming from? Everyone I would imagine, but... Well, the paper has been around for 44 years and has built a a certain reputation in the city for doing, in the state, for doing a certain kind of story. I got an email yesterday from a guy in Bend who said, look, I, I used to work in TV news in New York, and I know your paper, and I know the kind of stories you do. Here's something I'd like you to look at. So, so the reputation for a certain kind of story long, long preceded me. So we get a lot of, you know, we get a lot of tips. And I, I think most stories, most good stories ultimately originate uh, from a knowledgeable person, usually an insider, who is unhappy or, or angry or aggrieved about uh, things not working the way they should, whether it's an individual's behavior or an institution that isn't doing what it's supposed to. So we get a lot of tips. I also spend a lot of time, as do my colleagues, trying to talk to people that are in positions uh, where a lot of information naturally uh, flows through their, through their sort of daily activity, a chief of staff or a, an elected official or a, you know, a lawyer for a corporation or a, you know, somebody who does a lot of cases uh, where he's suing the city or suing uh, uh, the state. So there are sort of natural places that we that we look for information, but a lot of the information does come to us because of the position that we're in. 
You're listening to King's Portland 50 series. I'll continue my conversation with Nigel Jaquis in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with Nigel Jaquis, investigative reporter for Willamette Week for the last 20 years. Nigel has been referred to as the reporter of last resort, and in 2005, he and the paper won the Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting on his work exposing Governor Neil Goldschmidt's abuse of a 14-year-old girl. I was reading a, an interview that you did with a former Willamette Week writer. I think it was. He's up in Seattle now. And you described yourself as a reporter of last resort, the person sources turn to after other avenues don't work. Yeah, sometimes it's frustrating, in fact, that people will come to me and say, look, I tried the Oregonian, I tried the Tribune, I went to, to TV, I went to radio, and uh, I'm ready to talk to you now. And I'm like, well, why didn't you come to me in the first place? <laughs> it, but it is the case that I think, I think the press is sometimes the place of last resort when people feel their employer or their... They're in a situation where they can't get justice or they can't get fairness. They'll come to the press after they've exhausted other avenues, and and oftentimes they come to Willamette Week after they've exhausted uh, daily options or television or something that they think might have a a larger audience. And I I think what it is is that if they've they've exhausted other options, it's because there's no easy solution, Mm -hmm. or the solution may be uh, very time-consuming. And so Again, as a weekly or as a paper that, that still has a 3,000-word story in it every week, we have that, that time and space kind of mentally carved out, even though, you know, these days I'm writing something for our website every day and I'm still writing every week. I still have a big sort of compartment of what's left of my brain that is uh, reserved for longer-term investigations or longer-term stories. So we are, I am maybe the paper, we are the paper and I am the reporter of last resort for a lot of people when nothing else uh, has worked. And a lot of times I can't help them either, but uh, I do still find it kind of frustrating or amusing or both that people will say to me, well, I tried everything else, so I guess I'll try you. (laughs) I don't know if it's a compliment or what. Do you always have one or two or more things sort of on the back burner uh, stories that you're investigating as sort of a long-term piece? Yeah, I, I try to have, um, if you were ever to see my desk, it, it's really, uh, it's piled high with paper and there's paper on the floor all around it. And uh, I have uh, a lot of file cabinets that are full. And um, I try to always be uh, working on a number of things at the same time because they're it, it's a little bit like the oil business. You know, you've got to drill a lot of dry holes to, to hit a gusher. And um, so, you know, people know about the stories that I've written that actually made it into the paper, and, and they don't know about the many, many stories that uh, turned out not to be stories or turned out not to be gettable. So I feel as if uh, it's sort of like a portfolio. You know, I, if I were only working on one story and that story didn't pan out, I'd look pretty stupid. So... And, and there are, candidly, these days, uh, with the shrinking of the press, there are fewer and fewer places to go. So more and more stories end up on our doorstep. And uh, I've always got way more stories than I can 
than I can do, and that's true for my colleagues as well. Mm-hmm. Is it frustrating or is it energizing? Both. Yeah. Uh, I, I find it. I find it just a terrible uh, trend. I think that uh, you know, democracy with a small D depends, obviously not entirely, but it depends on a free press and it depends on a vigorous press. And and to be vigorous, you need to have resources. And what we've seen particularly over the past decade, is the shrinking of every newsroom in this state and in this country, pretty much, including even the New York Times. So it's frustrating because I feel, I know, I don't feel, I know that there are important stories in this city and this state that aren't getting written because there simply aren't enough reporters to do them, whether it's television, radio, or or print. So that's frustrating. It's energizing in the sense that uh, it's just, there's just a wealth of stories for me to choose from. And it's a little bit like going to Baskin Robbins when you're a little kid. You don't know which to choose, but you know every option is uh, probably a pretty good option. And that's probably what keeps you going as well, all those yeah. different stories. Yeah. The other part that I focus on a lot uh, are the election pieces. When you interview, sometimes I'll watch the videos of when you interview uh, these candidates. The the pieces where you drill down, uh, like you did with the primaries, couple of weeks ago where you drill down sort of what these people are about and why you've chosen them. I often find as I'm, you know, filling out my ballot, I've got the voters pamphlet and I've got Willamette Week open and those are my two tools. How much time goes into the primary is going to be different than, than, you know, a huge election, whether it's a presidential election or even, you know, every two years, how much time goes into setting up these interviews, doing your research uh, and drilling it down. It, it's really, it's a huge time commitment. So we, we try and endorse in every race in our readership area. And so that'll take us out to Clackamas County, Washington County uh, for legislative races, obviously everything in Portland. You know, there'll be for the general election, uh, there will be probably 50 that we'll have to do. And we have a policy that we invite all candidates and sometimes the candidates are you know, they're, they're fringe candidates who just like a little attention. That takes a lot of resources and it takes a lot of reporting because sometimes it's obvious we'll have uh, three candidates in and it'll be very clear who the who the superior candidate is, but many times it's not clear. So then we make a lot of phone calls to try and find out more about people that we don't know. And it really takes a lot of time. One of the things that's nice about the Internet is, I used to sometimes feel frustrated that we would put in all this time on these endorsement issues, and then you really didn't know if anybody was reading them. We can tell now, of course, and we see that readership for those endorsement issues really spikes uh, when people get their ballots and it stays strong uh, through election day. So it's rewarding in that sense that we can see people are are using what we do, you know, it, it, it's a time-consuming, grueling process in a way because you might do three or four interviews in a day and they're all taped. You know, you have to try and stay focused and try and stay fresh for, for all of those. So I think it's really important, and I, I can tell that people read what we do. Well, and sometimes when you're reading the voters' pamphlet, particularly on a ballot measure, it might be hard to figure out exactly what's going on because some of them can be obscure, and so being able to go to the Willamette Week and go, okay, you know, this is the yes, this is the no sort of thing uh, makes it a little bit more clearer for 
many people who don't, who maybe aren't paying attention either to particular things until it gets to be November. Yeah, I think um, I think it's a public service. Uh, the ballot measures are confusing, often intentionally so, and candidates will all tell you that you know they're like a new car. They're, they've got every feature, and they're 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 shiny and new, and so it's our job to try and look behind the surface presentation because, of course, every candidate is going to present him or herself in, in the most favorable possible light. So uh, readers are busy. They've got a lot of other things that they need to spend their time on. So, you know, we can spend a little bit of our time trying to sort through uh, what people are saying and see what's true and what's not. And there are sometimes, how do I put this? I don't want to say brutal assessments, but sometimes there are brutal assessments on some of these candidates when it's necessary. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think we tried, we try always to be fair. Uh, we're not always kind. And, you know, sometimes it's appropriate, I think, to give people the unvarnished truth. It's always appropriate to give them the truth. And sometimes it needs to be a little bit less varnished than others. Our job is to ask people hard questions. And if they don't have answers or if they their answers are, are uh, bogus, uh, we need to tell our readers that. Mm-hmm. In the 20 years you've been in journalism, in Willamette Week, there's been a lot of changes. Ads tapered off, whether it's a daily or an alt weekly staffing is reduced. You know, same thing with radio for challenges. There's just so many more outlets where people can get their news and information and entertainment. How do you compete with that in 2018? Well, yeah, it's hard. I, I think uh, I, I'll say a couple of things that are positive that are not often, maybe not obvious. So one thing is that it's much easier for a person like me who depends heavily on public records and documents to create a factual spine for my stories to get those records. Many of them are stored electronically. You used to have to drive down to Salem to look at you know, paper records. That took forever. Or go down to City Hall and look at paper records. So obtaining uh, really important information is easier than it's ever been, and that's a great, that's a great change. Uh, being able to, uh, as much as I sometimes complain about having to write something every day, being able to communicate with readers immediately when you have something you think they might want to know about is really an advantage. And so how we compete, I think, is that we still have a, a very high standard for what we publish. Um, you know, editing is a big part of uh, journalism and our work is heavily edited, meaning that uh, it's bouncing back and forth between editor and reporter many times, especially on cover stories or important stories, before the public gets a chance to see it. So there's a lot of information available to people, but a lot of that information is not professionally prepared in the sense that it, it isn't held to high standards. It isn't based on public records and on the record uh, sources. It isn't edited by experienced professionals. So I, I guess it's like food. You know, you can buy you, you can buy a lot of different things and put them in your body and call them food, but there's a real quality difference that's that's observable if you stand back and say, you know, would I rather have a uh, uh, burger that I made myself at home out of beef that I, you know, I know where it comes from, or would I rather have a McDonald's uh, Big Mac? Uh, so I, I think that we still are able to offer, even with uh, much reduced newsroom and resources, we're able to offer readers uh, a high-quality product, and I think they they have come to realize they can depend on us. Before the internet age, when I would be working at Kink, whether it's weekends or overnights or what have you, I'd often go to the 
music section or the theater section and look at what the shows are, what what's being recommended. And it's nice to see that hasn't changed. I might not uh, use it as much, but it's nice to see those every once in a while. I go, oh, yeah, that person's coming to town. But something else that's new is the Potlandia. Yeah, Potlandia yeah, is Potlandia. a publication that we that we put out. We have moved into you know a beer guide, uh, Potlandia, which is a guide to cannabis business. Uh, we do you know a bar guide. We, so we have, in order to stay uh, to stay relevant, but also to find uh, new sources of revenue, produced a number of different publications. We also produce an annual guide called Finder, which is a great guide to Portland. So. You know, Mark Zussman, Richard Meeker have been really forward thinking about, they, they've recognized, you know, first classifieds went away, then display advertising is slowly going away. So the traditional sources of revenue that we've depended on have dried up. They've gone out and found new ways to, to both sort of reignite uh, interest in different parts of the city or, or what we can offer, what we can write about the city. And so, you know, it's, it's more, in a way it's more work, but it's also more revenue. Well, and pot is mainstream, and yeah. I'm reading the reviews. I think it's three strains a week, but I'm reading the reviews, and, you know, again, I, th- I think, and I'm not just saying this because you're sitting next to me, the reviews are thought out, you yeah. know, it's and the technical terms, and it's, you know, this is what's in it, this is where it comes from, and, and talks about the grower and then the experience with the strain, which it's, this is Portland. I think uh, if if there's one thing that has uh, stayed true throughout my experience, and again was true before I got there, is that y- you can't get away at Willamette Week with kind of uh, phoning it in or mailing it in, uh, as you might be able to at some publications. Mark Mark Sussman is basically going to, as he does with me every week, say, you know, that's not actually good enough. You need to take run that through your computer an- another time and ask a couple more questions and I need to see somebody else quoted in this story. And that, that, that's true whether it's a, a, a review of a new strain of cannabis or a cover story about the governor. The, the same kind of critical thinking that, that he brings to the paper every week and has instilled in the rest of us, uh, I think, set us apart a little bit. What are some of, before I let you go, what are some of your most proud pieces, the pieces that you're most proud of putting out, whether it's, you know, long-term or short-term or the things that if someone were to say, show me your main bodies of work that you, that you uh, think are the best. Well, I, I think immodestly, I would say that I, I'm perhaps known for uh, investigating uh, politicians like Goldschmidt and Kitzhaber, Sam Adams, Jefferson Smith, and others, but the story that I remain perhaps the proudest of is a story I wrote in 2001, uh, a long time ago now, about uh, Whitaker Middle School. At the time, Whitaker Middle School uh, was perennially uh, at the bottom uh, when the state released uh, standardized test scores. It was a school that was was the school of last resort where students that nobody else wanted or could serve or could help uh, seemed to end up, and that was true with uh, faculty as well. There were a lot of, you know, there were a lot of faculty there who had been other places and it hadn't worked for them. So this was a, a school in, in northeast Portland next to Fernhill Park, and I had heard from faculty that uh, the building was very unpleasant. It was, uh, people were getting sick. They didn't know why. The air quality seemed to be uh, bad and so I, I'd made a public records request for all the environmental testing that had been done in the building. 
and it turned out that there were high levels of radon and black mold in the building and that the school district had known about it for a long time, had known that the building was environmentally unsafe, really toxic. And um, there were, I was able to demonstrate high levels of absenteeism, both among uh, students and teachers, unusually high levels. And so I wrote this story and uh, the school district closed the building uh, the day after the story. It never reopened. And they actually tore down the building uh, shortly after that. So I feel that what we aspire to is journalism that has an impact, that makes a difference in people's lives. And I thought that here, here are, you know, six or 700 uh, students and 100 adults who are going to school in a building that the school district knows is unsafe. They know that it's got unusually high levels of radon gas, which is a carcinogen. They know it's got unusually high levels of black mold, which ha- causes all kinds of health problems, and they're not doing anything about it. And in, in, in large part, I thought they weren't because it was a low-income school, served primarily minority children. It was in a part of town that was then low-income and, you know, had there weren't advocates for the school or for the people in it. And so here was a story that we did that caused an immediate change, and it, it led to, as I said, the school being uh, torn down. So I, I'm proud of that story uh, because I think it did have real impact, and it showed once again, that you don't have to have a lot of resources. You don't have to be the Oregonian or the New York Times to to make a difference in people's lives. Thanks. 44 years for Willamette Week. Um, Hopefully we'll see you on the other side of 50. Thanks for joining me, Nigel. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with Nigel Jaquis. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland 50 podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating King's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.